0: And welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers. My guest today is Terry Tucker. Terry has reinvented himself frequently over his professional career. After he graduated from college at the Citadel, where he played NCAA Division I basketball, he was employed in the marketing department at the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International in Dublin, Ohio. From there, he worked in hospital administration for Riverside Methodist Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. After getting married and moving to California for his wife's job, he became the customer service manager for an academic publishing company in Santa Barbara. After his daughter was born, him and his wife moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, where he became a police officer with the Cincinnati Police Department, where he was a SWAT hostage negotiator. Following a family relocation to Texas, he started a school security consulting business and coached high school girls basketball in Houston. Each time he took on a new job, he had to develop new skills and face different challenges. We're going to speak with Terry today about his challenges over the years and his biggest challenge to date that started in 2012. Welcome, Terry. How are you today?
1: I'm great, Terry. Thanks for having me on. Listening to you say that, I kind of figure out one of these days, I got to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up, you know?
0: <laughs> so many great jobs. I mean, really, you really have. So varied, like so many people stick to one thing, but you were all over the place, which I love because that's me too. I've had a million and one jobs. In fact, my family laughs at me because I've had so many different jobs and worked for so many different companies. That's, I'm the big joke, but you know, I'm not the joke now.
1: (laughs) No, not at all. I mean, every time you grow and, and you get better as a person, so you know nothing wrong with having multiple jobs.
0: There really isn't. There, so I would just let them say what they say. I just let it go right over my shoulder. So you've had varied jobs over the years, some corporate, to becoming a SWAT hostage negotiator, to coaching high school basketball. Then in 2012, you were faced with a cancer diagnosis. So take us through your journey mm. with cancer, the diagnosis, what happened, and then we're going to talk about your book, Sustainable Excellence.
1: So in 2012, I was a girls' high school basketball coach, and I had a callous it broke open on the bottom of my foot, right below my third toe. And I didn't give it a lot of thought initially because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot during the day. But after a couple of weeks when it didn't heal, I went to see a podiatrist friend of mine, a foot doctor, and he took an x-ray and he said, you know, I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It was just a gelatin sack With some white fat in it, no dark spots, no blood, nothing that would lead anybody to think anything was abnormal. But he sent it off to pathology. So, two weeks later, I get a call from him. And as I said, he was a friend. So, the more difficulty he was having telling me what was going on, obviously the more frightened I became. And so, finally, he just kind of laid it out. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have a rare form of melanoma that appears either on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. He said, I recommend you go to MD Anderson Cancer Hospital and be treated. So that was 2012. I did. I had two surgeries to remove the tumor and all the lymph nodes in my groin. And then when I healed, I was placed on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon. And interferon for me was just a horrible nasty debilitating drug and w- without spent a lot of time on it basically it gave me flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection and i took those injections for almost five years
0: so every week you're sick for two to three days
1: yeah it's oh. just like having the flu it, right. exactly awful, it, awful. It, it was and that wasn't a a drug to cure me that was a drug. To basically hold the disease at bay. Eventually, the drug became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which normally isn't compatible with life. Fortunately, I was at a level one trauma center and they were able to stabilize me. So I had to stop the drug. That was 2017. 2018, I had my left foot amputated. 2019, it came back again with multiple surgeries. And then last year, an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone, and further testing found out that my entire lower leg was full of cancer and I had tumors in my lungs. So in April of 2020, I had my left leg amputated above the knee right in the middle of the pandemic. So on that uplifting note...
0: (laughs) No one could be with you for that, right? Because it was the pandemic... No, awesome. my wife
1: just dropped me off at the hospital. She was like, What should I do? I'm like, just go in the parking lot and pray. I mean, I I I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I was the only surgery that day. It, it was Ugh. yeah.
0: Heartbreaking, it was not fun. But it had to be done. So, you know, you, you just learn to do what needs to be done, right?
1: Absolutely. There, there was no alternative at that point. I mean, my leg was broken. It wasn't going to heal because it was full of cancer. So the only option was to take it off. And that was something that needed to be done. I had a great doctor. He he took me to a hospital within the University of Colorado systems that did not take COVID patients. And he told me, he said, you're going to be in here for 48 hours. You should be in here for a week, but you're only going to be in for 48 hours. So he did a great job of managing my sickness along with the COVID situation.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And you know, it's funny, because when I listened to you on another podcast before today, some song started playing through my head, (laughs) where it came from. But it's one, it's pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and start all over again. (laughs) And and so I, I Googled it, and I got the YouTube with Frank Sinatra singing it, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers sang it, and I'm like, oh, good, now I have something I can play when I need something to get myself out of myself and just dust yourself off and keep going because what alternative do you have? You really don't have any other alternative, or you could just lay down and die. And many people do do that, frankly, they just give up. But you don't look like the type of person who gives up.
1: Not so far. I, you know, but again, I, I guess I want your audience to understand that. I have bad days, I get down, I I cry, I, you know, I, I feel sorry for myself. And I always, I always remember, th- there's an old Japanese proverb that goes, that pain is inevitable, we're all going to experience pain in life. And, and it doesn't have to be something as dire as cancer. You know, I mean, if you're still right. working, it may be somebody else gets the project that you want, or you have a fender bender on the way to, to work or, or whatever it is. You know, your your grandkids are coming, but, you know, they can't make it for some reason and you're disappointed. Whatever that is, we're all going to experience pain. Pain is inevitable. Right. Suffering, on the other hand, suffering is optional. Suffering is what you do with that pain. Do you use it to make you stronger and more determined, or do you just wallow in it and play in the muck and the garbage and let people feel sorry for you? It's all what you do with it.
0: That's so true. When I had cancer back in 2017, the hardest part was losing my hair because as a female, and it was blonde, I dyed it. It made me look like 15 years younger, and then it fell out. And then it came back in gray. And I thought, you know what? Obviously, the coloring is toxic to my system because I got cancer. So I'm not going to color it again. And you know what? I'm a boomer now. Who cares? And a lot of young people come up to me and say, oh, I love the gray. I love the gray. And some young people are actually dyeing their hair gray. Go figure.
1: Really? I didn't know that. Okay.
0: There are young people that are just enthralled with the gray look. And it's like, it'll come soon enough. (laughs) Don't rush. And I interviewed another woman. Um, She was, I think, last week or the week before, Linda Kroll. She had cancer six times. And she's had like 12 surgeries. So similar to you, but hers is gone. So it's, she's done for now. She's okay. And she's working and she looks great. She had the same thing. She had blonde hair, well, I guess with the chemo fell out and the gray's back. And she's like, I'm fine with it. And she's doing really, really well. Unfortunately, you got a really bad cancer. That's unusual. Mine was lymphoma, very curable. I knew from the start, it was only getting through the process and then move on. So that's what I did. but. You, unfortunately, have a much harder journey. So, And I'm glad, though, because you can be a role model for the rest of us. Because if you can do what you're doing with a cancer diagnosis, what are we sitting around doing nothing for? This doesn't make sense. So talk about your book, because you wrote your book after your leg was amputated. So again, you're not feeling good. The leg's gone, and you're writing a book. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, that was... uh... That was sort of a unique experience for me as well. So, as I said, I had the, the leg amputated in April of 2020. And I started chemotherapy for the tumors in my lungs in June of 2020. And in that three-month period where I probably should have been sitting around eating bonbons and watching Netflix, I literally wrote this book. And the book is it's called Sustainable Excellence: The 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. And it's really a conver- or it's a book based on two conversations I had. One was with a former player of mine who had moved to Colorado where my wife and I live. And we had had dinner with her and her boyfriend. And I said to her one night, I'm really excited that you're living close to me and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And she kind of looked at me and she was like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about your life should be finding that purpose. And then once you find it, living it. So that was one conversation. And then the other conversation was with a young man, a college student who connected with me on LinkedIn. And he wanted to know what I thought were the most important things he should learn to not only be successful in his job or in business, but also in life. And I didn't want to give him the get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. They are they're incredibly important. and But I, I just felt they'd been done a lot. I wanted to try to do something different, something that I could give him that maybe, in all honesty, resonated in his soul, so to speak. So I spent some time, wrote some notes, and eventually came up with these 10 principles. And I sent them to him. And then I sort of stepped back and I was like, well, I've got a life story that fits underneath this principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates that principle. So- literally in that three-month period where I was healing, I sat down at the computer and started to build stories underneath the principles. And that's how sustainable excellence came to be.
0: Wow. That's incredible. That's just so incredible. So, and I think a lot of people have those stories within themselves, but they're afraid to share them. And they're afraid to put those hands on the computer and start typing. Just start typing and see what comes of it. Because We're all unique beings. We all have a different story to share. And I wish more of my boomers would do that. And even if you're only sharing your story with your grandchildren, you need to at least do that because I think a lot of us pass and we've never shared stories with our grandchildren or our own children. And then once we're gone, they start thinking of questions they would love to ask and we're gone so if nothing else, share your story, share your life, why you think the way you do, why you are the person you are today with your family members, if nothing else. But if you can share it with the world, why not? The world needs it.
1: Yeah. And You know, when I started it, you know, I was kind of in a situation where I really didn't know much about publishing or writing a book or anything like that. So I really gave myself just two rules. Number one is that I would write at least one page every day except sunday I didn't write on sunday and it didn't matter i just had to write at least one page and number two was i wouldn't edit anything until i had the first draft of it done and and i'll be honest we did. there were days i sat down at the computer and wrote a bunch of garbage you know that i knew would never end up in a book but then there were the days where it was like no that was good that was a good story or, or the way that came across was good And eventually you weed out the things. And I I ended up hooking up with a publisher who I was in law enforcement, as you mentioned. He had been in law enforcement, kind of a funny story. And he was a police chief in a small town in Louisiana. And a friend had said, will you come to Los Angeles and put on a presentation for authors who would like to understand police tactics and use them in their books? And he's like, sure, I'll come out and do that. Well, he ends up going out there and meeting his wife Wow. was a, a best-selling author of fiction books written about 34 best-selling books and and they end up getting married and they start this not-for-profit publishing company and 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 it was great cuz I had editors and, and and everybody and you know it's I've never had a baby but you know this book was kind of like my baby and I was you know the editors would say you know you should take this out or you should expound on this or and you sort of get defensive Yeah. But I always kind of got to the point where it was like, well, these are the experts. I am not. And so I would always sleep on it. And usually the next morning it was like, yeah, they're right. I'm going to change this or I'm going to take this out. So it it was, it was a great experience. And and I loved it. But you know, after the book was published, I was like, I've got to sell books. I've got to sell books. And I had a best-selling author over in the United Kingdom who I'd connected with. And and he kind of reached out to me and he said, No, Terry, he said, You're you're going about this the wrong way. Your job is not to sell books your job is to help people. If you help people, your books will sell themselves. And I was so glad he said that because I didn't write the book to get famous. I didn't write the book to make money. I I just wrote it to help people. And I needed somebody to kind of slap me in the face and say, hey, no, you're going about this the wrong way.
0: And like I looked at your website and you have been on a ton of podcasts, a ton of them which you are still a sick person. And I'm sure your energy comes and goes. And yet you are getting up and getting on podcasts every day, because you know, that's going to help other people. And that's incredible, because most people would just say, you know what, I'm not feeling good, I'm not going to do it. But you're just pushing, pushing, pushing. I find that phenomenal.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, That's sort of my my wife and I would go back and forth. I I'm on a clinical trial drug now. So I'm I'm at the hospital for a week and then I get two weeks off. And during that two week off period is when I do most of my podcasts. And my wife is like, look, you need to heal. You need to rest. You need to do. And so she's limited me to like two podcasts a day. You can only do two. And and there are days when I do four or five and she gets mad at me. But you're right. I mean, this is my purpose now to put yes. as much goodness, as much positivity As much love back into the world, and I do it through these podcasts. And I have I've done podcasts with people from all over the world, and it has just been a great experience for me. And it energizes me. And I I sort of look at it, and I'm like, hey, I'll get plenty of sleep when I'm dead. So I I mean I I'll I'll be great there. So just let me do this because right now this is my purpose, and and I know my limits. I know when you know. Yeah, I probably should have done one less today than I did yesterday, but whatever.
0: You know what I feel when I'm doing my podcast? It energizes me too. I just love it. It gets me so excited, and and I never feel better than the day I'm doing a podcast recording. So I can see where that can even help you heal because it's that those that positive energy, those vibes, they're all healing energy. So I do think it is going to heal you. You do have to be careful not to get you know your energy too low that it's hard to pass. But I think in the long run, the podcasts are healing for you. So
1: I agree. Yeah. I, agree.
0: I think if you didn't do them you'd find out that you'd go back and not do as well so
1: well and that's just it it's like what do you do with your life you know and if you can do something positive to help other people or you can sit around and watch television all day and i mean and that's not doing anything for anybody and and i i just i didn't want to do that i wanted to have a purpose when i graduated from college my father was and my grandmother were both very sick with cancer and And you mentioned that first job with Wendy's. I I did find that first job, but I ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mom care for my father and my grandmother who were both dying of different forms of cancer. But the thing I remembered about my dad is that he went to work up to two weeks before he died. And he had end-stage breast cancer back in the 1980s, which doctors didn't really know what to do with. No. No. They pretty much told him to go home and die, but he lived for three and a half years and he lived that, I believe, because he had a purpose and that purpose was his job and going to work. So I remembered that and I thought, you know what? Yes, I'm sick. If I sit around and watch TV, I'm going to die. I need to do something. I need to find that purpose, that next purpose in my life and live that.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's funny that your father had breast cancer because my husband had breast cancer. Uh Now, his mother had it twice. So she always said to him, you've got to be checking your breasts like women do because men get breast cancer, too. There's a lot of men out there that don't know that. So he would check all the time. And he found a tiny, tiny, tiny lump that was like the size of a pea. And he went to his family doctor and said, I want a biopsy. And he laughed and said, it's probably a cyst. We'll watch it. He goes, oh, no. I want a biopsy. So he goes, well, if you insist. So he did the biopsy, but, you know, he sent him for one, but he wasn't happy. It turned out to be a really aggressive cancer. So they found it early. He got it done. He had a little bit of chemo, and he's he's like seven years now. So he's been fine. But, you know, most men aren't checking for breast cancer because it just It's not anything that they're thinking along. And a lump has to get pretty big before they notice it. And by that point, it's hard to deal with. And especially back in the 80s, they didn't really know a lot.
1: They didn't. And you're right. You know, you think a lump the size of a pea, like what your husband had, is a billion cancer cells. Not a million, a billion. Billion. Wow. I mean, so if you think about that, it's pretty remarkable that it has to get that big before you, you do that. Funny situation, you know, my my dad's mother had breast cancer as well. Two summers ago, I had all 88 genes that doctors either know cause cancer or suspect cause all different forms of cancer. And I have no mutations in any of my genes.
0: Oh, wow.
1: It's good for my daughter. You know, our our daughter, it's good for her to know, but it begs the question: why did I get this very rare form of cancer? And my doctor. He's like, I don't know.
0: Yeah. But no you reason. Got it. No way so to you gotta know. deal with it. Yeah. Now, lymphoma, my older brother had it in the 90s and he died from it because again, back then they didn't know enough about it. And I remember him getting so sick, throwing up, and just awful. Now, when I went in for treatment, the biggest thing I had, I was just so tired. I didn't throw up because now they put nausea stuff in. They know how to put all the stuff in so that you don't feel that bad anymore. So I really wasn't, the worst thing was being just tired all the time. Mm-hmm. So that can be, di- cause I was trying to work. I was still selling real estate at that point. I got a wig, put it on my head and didn't tell any of my clients that I was sick because I didn't want them to know. So the fatigue was really hard to deal with. But other than that, they've come a long way with cancer treatments. And all they did was add one more drug to what they've been using for years and years. But that drug has made all the difference in the world of curing lymphoma. So lymphoma is like 85% curable I think, maybe 90. So it's I knew right up front that it wasn't going to be a problem. Plus my mind said, "Nah, I'm not dying from this cancer." And I just and then I looked for what else do I have to do because I feel like cancer's a wake-up call. What am I doing wrong? What can I change? Am I not eating right? Am I around toxic things? And I started trying to take things out of my life that might add toxins to my body. So I did other things. I started eating better. I eat a salad every day. I've never been a salad person. I still don't enjoy them, but I eat them. So I've changed a lot of things so that it doesn't come back. But it's cancer's cruel. Like certain cancers, they're just hard to cure. And you've unfortunately gotten one of those and, but you've done incredible. It's been nine years, correct?
1: Yeah. And I was told right off the bat that, you know, this will be a chronic disease for you until it kills you. It's not going to be something we're going to be able to cure. And I got the, you know, probably five years is about how long you live. And again, with my dad, I looked at, you know, three and a half years after pretty much you told him he was dead already. So I'm like, I don't, I don't put a lot of stock in what doctors say. Doctors don't, know me. They don't know my resolve. They don't know my mind and things like that. So, you know, if you get that diagnosis, and I, I'm not going to tell you that if a doctor says, you know, make sure your affairs in order, you shouldn't have your affairs in order. My, mine are. But at the same time, doctors don't know. And sometimes you surprise them. A lot of it depends on you.
0: Right, right. How old were you when you were diagnosed?
1: So 2000, I was 51.
0: 51. That's what I thought. 51. I was 66. So I'm turning 71 this month. So, um, so I'm pretty much close to that five-year mark. So I'm good. But again, like I wasn't even upset when I got the diagnosis because I knew it was very curable. And my husband's, he found their, his cancer so early, we didn't think that was a death sentence either. So, but there are, like you said, some cancers that are. So, but again, it's your mindset, how you look at it, how you deal with it. It's Very, very important to have a positive mindset.
1: It really is. And I've, you know, over these nine years, I've kind of developed what I call my four truths that, and I'll give them to you. They're just one sentence each. And I have them, if I'm looking down, I have a a post-it note on my, my desk with them on. And I see them multiple times every day. So the first one is you need to control your mind or it will control you. The second one is, you need to embrace the pain that we all experience in life and use that pain to make you a stronger and more determined individual. The third one, and I've just added this one fairly recently, because I think it's important that we all think about the end game. When I found out about my situation with my leg and the tumors in my lungs, I went with my wife to the funeral home, to the mortuary, to the cemetery, and I planned my funeral. And I got some criticism for that. People are like, you know. That's defeatist. And I'm like, well, last time I checked, we're all going to die. So I don't know what's defeatist about that. You know, everybody dies. Not everybody really lives. And I think it's more important to spend that time living. There's an old Native American Blackfoot proverb that goes, when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking forward to. So that third one is what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one is pretty self-explanatory. As long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And so I, I use those. I had a nurse recently come to me and say, you know, Terry, this clinical trial drug is really beating you up. I have a lot of physical symptoms with it. It's like, nobody would think anything less of you if you quit. And I said, you know, one, it's helping me a little bit. It's, it's not curing me, but it's helping me. And I said, and two, I'm just not wired that way. You know, my doctor may take me off the drug or I may die on the drug, but I'll never quit the drug because that's just not how I'm wired. I've never quit anything in my life. I'll keep going. And the, the other thing that's important, I think, to remember is that because it's a clinical trial, the doctors are gleaning information. So this is bigger than me. You know, this is maybe the doctors will learn something that five years from now, 10 years from now, there'll be a drug that they can synthesize that will help somebody live longer or, or beat cancer. And maybe I'll be a part of that. I may even be dead when that happens, but I'll still be a part of that. So being part of something that's bigger than yourself, I think, gives you a purpose in your life.
0: It really does. It's so well said. That's so true. So tell uh, people how they can get in touch with you if they want to get find out more about your book and, and you know your four pillars. I believe they're on your website. So give us your contact information.
1: So my website is motivationalcheck.com. And every day I put a new thought for the day up there. On Mondays, I put the Monday morning motivational message And the videos and the stories and the the things that I put up there are short. I realize people are busy. So if you need a quick shot of inspiration or motivation, you can go to motivationalcheck.com and find me there. You can leave me a message. You can get access to buying my book. So pretty much everything that you need is is pretty much there at motivationalcheck.com.
0: Oh, that's perfect. I'm so happy. So I want to thank you, Terry, for being a guest on Kick-Ass Boomers. Your inspiration and drive, even in the throes of cancer, are remarkable. And I can't think of a better role model for my baby boomer nation who are thinking there's nothing left for them to give back to the world. If you can power through with all of your health drawbacks, anyone can just get up and try to influence one person for the better each day. Do you know someone who needs a kind word from you or some inspiration? If Terry can push himself to keep going with the terminal diagnosis and get up every day and smile, what small part can you play in making the world a better place to live and love? So, thank you so much for being my guest today. I'm honored to have you as one of my interviewees. You are a true kick-ass boomer. You're one of the best. So. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed today's podcast and I know my audience will too. Thank you for sharing with us.
1: Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Kick-Ass Boomers. For more information on today's guest, along with the show notes and other inspiring resources, buzz on over to kickassboomers.com. And don't forget to join our Kick-Ass community on Facebook or LinkedIn to continue the conversation. Be bold, not old.